in a crude laboratory in the basement of his home. Welcome to the Tech Today podcast, powered by CEO Raider. It's your host, John Mayetta. We haven't been on in a while. We've been publishing content. You should check it out while it's free. We go to premium next month, and we, we've published a number of articles in the past several weeks. We've covered Amazon's smart home bundle, the fact that they are creating a, a smart home bundle around the, the router that they recently acquired, not to mention the ring acquisition, not to mention smart cameras and all sorts of other connected devices that they own in their portfolio that all tie into Amazon's cloud. And they've made it really easy for the do-it-yourselfer to roll out a portfolio of connected devices and surveillance services all routed into the cloud. And Amazon has become the de facto leader in the home. I think they are a step ahead of Google. I still think that Google is the AI leader. But when you look at the bundle of connected devices and related services around the home, Amazon is the leader. And by related services, I'm predominantly talking about Amazon Key which hasn't been talked about much in the press. It's still early days there, but I expect that to be a very material piece of Amazon's business, particularly in densely populated areas of the country. If you think about large apartment complexes in New York, Chicago, Boston, D.C., San Francisco, Dallas, services like Key, I think, are going to become the norm in the not-too-distant future. So check that out. That is currently a free article entitled, Amazon is Making Smart Home Bundles Easy. That's a free article at Tech Today, and we'll go to premium status sometime in the next few weeks. We also covered the age of autonomous video games, and this is kind of neat, and I don't remember what the catalyst was. I think this was a conversation I was having with an investor friend, and we were talking about Google's gaming effort, which at the time of writing this article, they hadn't, Google hadn't made that, uh, that announcement on March 19th. And we've yet to write about it. We'll probably have something out on Google's gaming effort in the next few days. But with respect to autonomous video games, the the, the article focuses on the fact that AI machine learning capability has made it possible for game publishers to publish games that, in part, write themselves. We have machine learning inside the game, and the machine learning platform is rendering visual effects as it relates to the game. So landscapes, cityscapes, this type of thing. You don't need a human visually rendering all of that background. Much of that is done by machines or can be done by machines. Some of it's being done by machines. Much of it will be done by machines. Point being, there's a fair amount of operating leverage that can take place with respect to the video production process, given that much of these visual effects will move from a human design to a machine design, therefore obviously get operating leverage. We don't cover what may come in the future, which would be autonomous characters in the game where various characters are sort of machine learning powered, self-learning. And the reason you really haven't seen that is because video game designers, video game publishers want to control the user experience. They want predictable outcomes within an array of outcomes. And if you were to insert an autonomous character into the game, particularly if that character was an adversary that's constantly learning, learning, learning. It's going to learn at a rate that's exponentially higher than the human playing the game. And therefore, that, that autonomous character would be able to defeat the human almost instantaneously. And so that would discourage usage. So that's why you don't see characters that are autonomous in the game. But in terms of game production, that increasingly is becoming machine learning driven. 
That too is a free article at Tech Today entitled The Age of Autonomous Video Games. We've published a couple more over the last week or so. We, we talk about the, the fintech consolidation wave and how the incumbents fear the mobile wallet. So you probably saw the news last week. IS agreed to acquire WorldPay for $43 billion in enterprise value. And that's on the heels of the uh, the Pfizer first data deal. And what's happening is you have uh, innovative fintech companies coming from below, like the Squares of the World, the Stripes. You have established fintech players like, like PayPal that have been around since the 1990s that have used their scale to drive innovation much more so than the banks or, frankly, even than the, the other large fintech players. So PayPal, what they've acquired, Venmo, Braintree, Zoom, there's a few others I can't remember, but they're doing a really nice job of, of complementing their core peer-to-peer payment platform with innovative payment tools that, that gain traction. And once those tools gain traction, PayPal's been, been acquiring them and rounding out their offering and, and staying ahead of the, uh, the aforementioned fintech players in banks. And then, of course, in addition to disruption coming from below, you have the big guys, the big platform players who all have mobile wallets. So whether it's Samsung Pay, Google Pay, Apple Pay, Microsoft Pay. These companies have enormous scale. And increasingly, people are paying with the phone, and that is gaining quite a bit of traction. I think we published some data around that with respect to adoption of mobile wallets and numbers that were put out by TSIS right around this time last year showed that mobile wallet interest, mobile wallet usage was in sort of the high 30s in 2015, low 40s, 2016 low 50s, 2017. And I think TSIS is due to publish a survey in the next couple of days at the end of the month, which will update the numbers for calendar year 2018. But it's clear that the trend line is is going up, up and to the right, which is the right direction if you are a large mobile wallet provider. So we expect to see mobile wallets continue to capture share. So you can find that article for free as well at Tech Today, entitled The FinTech Consolidation Wave Continues Encumbrance Fear of the Mobile Wallet. And then the last one we just published last night, entitled How AI Will Conquer Financial Services. And when we say financial services, we're talking uh, for the most part about investment management slash asset management, less so broader banking and broader financial services. And uh, so we focus on sort of the invest- the investment decision-making process in, in our article. And we talk about how AI slash machine, machine learning can insert itself into that process. And of course, in the case of quantitative hedge funds, they're entirely machine learning driven. But in the case where you have a, a portfolio manager, and it's still a fundamental research process, investment process. Machine learning can help, can provide decision support. You can use machine learning as a crutch of sorts in that ML has access to massive data stores, can search those stores for relevant information that may help inform your decision-making process on the fly. And so we paint one very specific scenario in the article, which I'm not going to talk about on the podcast I think we do it in a way where it's an actual conversation between a human portfolio manager and an AI. So we spell it out for you explicitly. So I think you're going to see more of that. Some people call this ambient AI, where AI is just running in the background, ready to support you in real time as needed. And we talk about some of the, some of the companies that may fully enable ambient AI within the investment decision-making process. So we cover sort of the obvious ones, the players that are 
leaders in that space today, such as Bloomberg, Faxet, Thomson Reuters. And then we talk about some of the other companies at the margin that may be well positioned to make ambient AI a reality. We have, so the, you know, the, the hard part is done, or I'd argue the expensive part is done. The core AI machine learning layer, and that's provided by Google, Amazon, Microsoft. They've all essentially open sourced those platforms so that third-party developers can build on top of them. And if you look at voice, which I think is going to be the, the interface for this ambient AI, that part is done. And that's dominated by Google and Amazon. And I think Google's the leader there. And if you think about the part that's sort of missing as it relates to ambient AI, if you look at the three legs of the stool, voice being one, the core AI machine learning being the second, the, the, the middle piece, the decision support piece is, is what's, what's lacking. And that's going to require knowledge of AI machine learning. That's going to require domain expertise as it relates to the investment decision-making process. And that's going to require capability around being able to work with disparate technologies. So some of this decision support effort may lend itself well to the large consultants, if you will, the Accentures of the world, the Infosys. IBM is one that's, you know, I, I typically take shots at IBM, but I think they're uniquely qualified in this space because they have the the systems integration delivery capability, and they have the AI capability, and they know financial services. So I think they're sort of uniquely qualified to deliver on the vision of ambient AI within asset management. And then there are a number of others, and you could read about that. And we lay out some visual examples as well, uh, some videos that have to deal with uh, Google's Assistant, which I'm sure many of you have seen, as well as a, a video around you know, where AI may take us in the not-too-distant future. And that has to deal with the singularity and things like this. It's all interesting stuff. So you can find that article at Tech Today as well. And that is entitled, How AI Will Conquer Financial Services. And that is also a, a free article for the time being. And hopefully you caught, uh, we had a couple of podcasts and an article or two around scaling an M&A and the importance of running an M&A strategy. And that's probably the one I feel most passionately about. If you haven't listened to a couple of our recent podcast episodes and Maybe five or six articles back in Tech Today where we talked about, I think we gave the example of AT&T acquiring Time Warner. Uh, the rationale for that acquisition was they wanted HBO. HBO was the original content crown jewel. This was around the 2014-2015 time frame. And then by the time AT&T consummated the deal, HBO, which was at that time viewed the leader uh, at that time when the, when the deal was sort of originally being uh, kicked around in AT&T's offices, uh, HBO was viewed as the original content leader. And then by the time the deal closed, AT&T was a laggard, having fallen behind Netflix and the other content platform players. Now, of course, you have um, Apple coming into the fold on the original content side. They have an announcement, I believe, on uh, March 25th, and they're going to talk about their bundled content service, which at this point is largely going to be third-party content providers. Apple doesn't have much in the way of their own original content. And of course, Amazon is in the space Netflix, Disney. Disney just closed the deal with Fox yesterday. Disney, to me, is the most interesting one in the original content space because they have the vast library of legacy Disney content. They have the the Fox content, that being you know X Men, you know the, the Deadpool franchise, this type of thing. They have the Lucasfilm slash Star Wars library. They have the Marvel library, and so when you look at and we wrote about this maybe a year or so ago, it would be nice if somebody on the street came up with a metric and if you don't have it we we came up with a metric that measures quality of content 
repeat viewing this type of thing. Because when you think about content and, and, and what is going to attract viewers, it's not just breadth of content that is going to attract viewers to a, a streaming service. And let's put live sports to the side for a minute. I'm talking more about packaged movie content and episodic television content. The, the quality of that programming is what really drives viewers to the platform and what drives repeat viewing. And I just think Disney has it head and shoulders over Netflix when it comes to quality of content. And at the rate Netflix is spending, was it $13 billion-ish on content in 2018, expected to be around $15 billion-ish on content in 2019, they'll eventually create some franchises that, that really work. But at the moment... I think that Disney's content library just is 10 times better than, than Netflix. And while we're talking about content, or while I was writing about content, I started to think about video games. And um, we will follow up to the age of autonomous video games with a piece on Google's announcement. If you caught that earlier in the week, it was on Tuesday. Just a phenomenal offering there, Stadia offering. And you've got roughly 2.5 billion video gamers across the globe. And Google's Stadia offering is a cloud-based offering, all on Google's cloud, nothing in the public cloud, all on Google's servers. These games are rendered in, in real time, these multiplayer games that can host thousands of players simultaneously. It's just a, a, a massive effort that, frankly, probably only Google can, can pull off at, at this time. Microsoft is due to release a, a, an Xbox Live Update cloud-based service I think in this calendar year, Amazon's due to release a cloud-based offering through Twitch later this calendar year. I'd be interested to, to compare the two. But Google's is going to be fascinating. So they're encouraging, obviously, third-party developers to create content, to create games for the platform. Details were not released around pricing. I suspect it'll be some sort of monthly subscription fee for all you could eat access to games, I would guess there may be an a la carte option, a la carte pricing option as well, and probably in-game purchases as, as well. But the the scale of what they built is pretty inspiring, and when you think about the scale of video games compared to the movie industry, it makes sense. Gaming is number one as far as broadly defined entertainment is concerned. And this is what happens when sometimes I go off on a tangent, I don't put a bow on things. And where I was going with with respect to AT and T and the acquisition of Time Warner HBO was that you've, you've got to be forward thinking in your M&A strategy and you've got to pursue assets. In, in my opinion, you've got to pursue assets that are number one or number two in their industry. If you buy subscale assets, you, you can't come from behind. If you're Google or Apple and you buy a subscale asset and the leading company in that space is a fraction of your size, Google size. It may be five times the size of what you just bought, but it's a fraction of your size. And let's say the space that you acquired in is very small. Uh, rather, it's early days, large potential, but early days. Okay, I get that. You can drop a tuck in into your platform if you Google and, and blow it out, and it could become the leader almost overnight. I understand that. But if it's more of a mature market and you have established players and you go out and buy the number six player in that industry, that's going to get you nowhere. You're not going to win the low-hanging fruit. You're not going to win the easy deals. Remember the old saying, you never got fired for buying IBM 30 years ago? That was commonplace within technology. It's the same thing. If you go out and acquire the number six asset 
in a particular industry, you're not going to win those easy deals. Nobody's ever going to say, let's just buy number six. Let's do a deal with these guys because, because they're number six. It's going to work. They have a sterling reputation. Nobody's going to fire us for, for licensing their platform, right? So you don't, you don't win those easy deals if you acquire the number six company in a, in a vertical. Furthermore, you don't get to enjoy the, the benefit, the economies of skill. So I've seen a little bit of that lately, and it's kind of discouraging because you would think CEOs and boards know better. The, 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 this isn't my opinion. These are you know, t- time-tested principles in business, in the economy. And those that don't learn from history, I just I will never understand them. That's all for now. See you next time.